0: to Reputation Matters. I'm your host, Chelsea Craig, and today I am absolutely thrilled to have on Jonathan Morgan, CEO and founder of Yonder. Jonathan, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here.
0: Of course. So I know we have some really great topics to talk about today, but before we jump into that, I'd love for you to just take a moment and you know tell us a little bit about your experience, both as an entrepreneur, as well as kind of founding, starting Yonder, and, and what a little bit more about Yonder
1: yeah so yonder is a software company we're a technology company that helps brands understand agenda-driven narratives on the internet and so that's often used in reputation management to identify potentially adversarial narratives or narratives that are kind of in contrast or maybe misrepresent the brand or even spread misinformation and to give them an early warning so that they can do things like scenario planning war gaming kind of whatever they want to do to make sure that their point of view is 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 included in the conversation or that as best as possible they can set and win the frame this all comes out of this idea uh, that's really linked to, the, the, I guess, the way that, you know, as technologists, we've been thinking about the Internet for a long time. It's driven by very passionate, very focused subcultures, and it's kind of the Internet by design. Uh, shuffles people into these little pockets of subcultures um, these little spaces where they can connect with other people based on their passions unrestricted by geography or age or demographics or whatever which is really amazing but i think what an inadvertent or unintended consequence of that is that it gives these groups these passionate groups a lot of power and influence because they're so highly valued they get a lot of attention they produce a lot of engagement like all of the things that get monetized on social media and so now we live in this information environment where even though a brand has huge amount of resources and relatively speaking you know they're they're very powerful they have a huge platform but this this social information space is more like the wild west it's more governed by these kind of hyper passionate hyperactive groups that can set the frame introduce and amplify narratives and really shape public opinion in a way that i think up until recently up until yonder came along has been pretty difficult to understand so that's where we focus
0: Yeah, I absolutely love that. I mean, you have a a lot of expertise in a a completely wide world when it comes to reviews or when it comes to reputations online in the digital space and helping brands protect themselves from unfortunately, detrimental situations. I know one of the things that we we focus on is specifically reviews and, and kind of what you were just talking about. A lot of the times we're dealing with brands that have thousands of customers. However, their reputation is being controlled by the opinion of you know 15 or 20 online reviews. So it is so interesting how such a small group can really control and dictate this brand. So you mentioned, you kind of hopped right into it. I'd love to get the term reputation management. There's so many different definitions of it, but to you, what does it mean?
1: Well, I think at least in the context of how we work and and the way that we work with companies, I think reputation management really means that you are, as best as you can, controlling the narrative about your brand, making sure that your point of view is heard and understood and shaping people's perception and understanding of who you are, what your values are, what the, the, the products that you produce, the experience that your customers have. These are all really important aspects of the brand that can be shaped by to your point, can, can be shaped by a group that is, or some individuals who are just particularly passionate about it. This concept of an asymmetry of passion on the internet, that whoever is kind of loudest and most energetic tends to, tends to shape public perception. And so when we think about reputation management, we really think about, okay, well, how can brands operate in that environment to make sure that they are mitigating the impact of some of these you know, more agenda-driven narratives that that might negatively impact their brand reputation. How do they make sure that their side of the story is always heard and understood and at least part of the conversation, part of setting the frame and part of shaping people's perception?
0: Absolutely love that. And you you mentioned the word passionate. It's it's such a great word for especially this industry because it's typically either incredibly positively passionate or negatively passionate. And you're, you know, that that word kind of covers absolutely both of them. One thing I caught that that when I was looking up a little bit more about Yonder, you talk about the different, you know, proactively helping these businesses, but then also reactively. Unfortunately, if you're going in and helping a company that's walked into a situation or or is reaching out because they're dealing with someone, could you explain the differences of the two and maybe how you kind of work with these companies when it is a proactive proactive situation versus a reactive.
1: Yeah, and I think actually the way that we're seeing customers or whether they think about it as crisis comms or corporate communications or PR or public affairs, you know, this kind of nebulous group that I think is formed inside most companies that's ultimately taken responsibility for the brand's reputation, at least in the digital space. And so they all have this responsibility of both mitigating the risk in real time of an incident that's evolving. But the way we see it is that they're also trying to get proactive so that they're out in front of these negative narratives as they emerge. And this really is a cycle. And so we think about it like there are, I think different to how most people think about it. On the social internet, it always feels like something, it doesn't exist. And then all of a sudden, like. it it goes viral. And I think that's based on the idea that most people online are kind of casual social media users, like everybody listening to your podcast, probably (laughs) like the two of us, you know, they tweet photos about their lunch, or they comment on the news of the day, or they, you know, like each other's baby pictures, or, you know, whatever. And, but in fact, that's, while most of us behave that way on the internet, that's not where most of the power and authority comes from. It comes from these agenda-driven groups who are hyper-passionate and work to get attention for their agendas. And that really plays into the dynamic that you were just talking about. And so instead of kind of waiting for an incident to happen and then trying to respond, what we find is that by identifying the agenda-driven groups that are most relevant to topics of conversation that impact a brand or your industry or other stakeholders, like your employees or shareholders or executives or whatever, By identifying these groups and monitoring them, then you can see emerging narratives when they're very, very early and understand their implications. And both of those things are really important because if you can't see a narrative, obviously you can't plan for it. Um, You can't develop a, a strategy to intervene. You might be surprised by it and overreact. There's all sorts of things that can happen if you're caught off guard. And at the same time, if you don't understand the implications of something, you might misjudge in a narrative when it's really early so maybe it's just a handful of posts on a social media platform that you've never heard of before and so how do you know that that has the likelihood that there's potential in that narrative to be a large public story and the reason that there is that potential is because sometimes narratives originate in spaces that seem far flung or weird or niche or whatever but what's behind them is an agenda-driven group that is deliberately trying to get attention for that narrative especially when they're pursuing something that maybe isn't specifically about the brand but they're pulling the brand into the conversation because it you know it gives them leverage or it gets them more attention or for whatever reason this happens a lot with political and social issues for example and so by identifying these groups you can see emerging narratives you can be proactive by seeing narratives days weeks or even months in advance before they become an incident and that way you can you can plan ahead to hopefully mitigate the impact so that it never feels like an incident in the first place and that said, like when a company comes to us and they say, hey, we're in the middle of it, something's happening, we need to turn this on right now. We can, of course, do that for companies. But what we find is that usually the narrative that they're experiencing or the incident that they're experiencing is driven by a handful of agenda-driven groups who they then need to continue monitoring after the incident is over. Because even when the public loses interest, now you have these groups that you can identify and monitor and track them so that the next time they include your brand in a narrative, you know about it well in advance. And so it's kind of like, hopefully you get out in front of it. Worst case, you deal with the current incident, but know that you're better prepared for the next one.
0: So many questions about, you know, a lot of the points that you just said, but one really sticks out to me. And it's a question that we get asked a lot. You mentioned, you know, these social media platforms, you all of a sudden find that your brand is appearing there and you haven't even heard of this platform yet. And I get asked a lot, you know, specifically in the world of reviews, but also in just mentions in general, Hey, we're on this new page or someone said something about it here. Do I need to worry about it? How much time do I need to put into it? And I'm sure that's not a clean cut answer, but could you provide some advice in that situation?
1: Yeah, so I mean, actually, our our product is designed to we call it an impact score, and so there's a, a comment or a couple posts, or there's this idea of an emerging narrative in some part of the internet, and it it might be on a mainstream social media space, or it might be on some web form or some website or some new social platform that nobody really has any idea about why it's there or what it's for, and the way that we calculate impact, and this is actually like a a prediction that the technology is able to make, the way that we calculate it is, okay, well, what group originated the narrative? How successful are they, have they been historically in getting impact for the things that they try and get attention for? We have a name for these groups, we call them factions. And so we say, okay, so what other factions might this narrative activate. It's almost like a game of chess. Like what's the what's the way that group A influences group B, influences group C, influences group D? Like what's the probability that there's a, a path or a trajectory from wherever the narrative is now on some random you know, some random page on the internet, what's the likelihood that it's able to move from that space into a more mainstream space based on the activity of these groups and what we understand about them over time. Um, And there are like thousands and thousands of them. Like this is something that the system is just trying to run around cataloging all the time on the internet. So the more of these that we find and understand, the more we're able to make these predictions in advance and and get at some of that difficult to assess those key decision-making moments where you're trying to predict impact in advance. And so you know whether or not you need to care about something before it blows up in your face.
0: You know, I mean, yeah, hopefully, hopefully you can get it and, I mean, in a weird way. It's a pattern recognition, even though so many times people say, wow, this just happened off chance. It really didn't. You're showing, no, there's a science. There's a logic behind this.
1: Almost always. And, and I think people who've been in digital media for a long time probably actually have some intuition about this. They just don't realize it. Like back in, I'll just properly date myself and say I was one of the Uh, early professional bloggers back when that was still a novel thing to be. When people used to make comparisons like, is print dead? Like if everybody remembers (laughs) 2005, really clearly. There's a, a, a great book that describes how influence and information tended to spread in the early days of these digital media properties. And basically some some, you know, popular but kind of fringe or peripheral blogger would get a hold of an idea and they would write about it. And, you know, maybe it'd be a rumor, maybe it'd just be speculation, who knows? And what would happen is that a slightly larger blog, a bigger media property, would see that post and go, Oh, that's interesting. And they'd comment on it. And then a slightly larger blog would see the post or the incident and then they would comment on it. And then it'd work its way up into something pretty big like Gawker or whatever. And it turns out Gawker was read by everybody who worked at the New York Times. And so the New York Times would cite Gawker because I don't know, Gawker's a pretty big website. And now all of a sudden, speculation by some random person with a blog would make its way into a top tier national publication. And that was a pattern that, you know, guerrilla marketers or sometimes, you know, pretty deceptive, they would exploit that dynamic all the time. And I think that's basically what happens with these factions. There are fringe factions who spread narratives to slightly more mainstream factions, which spread narratives to slightly more mainstream factions, and then eventually it works its way into a mainstream space like Twitter, where there's a lot of journalists who hang out, and they're, you know, often commenting on social media activity, not necessarily validating it, but just saying, oh, this is something that I noticed. But as soon as they bring it to people's attention, I mean, you know, if you're a writer for The New York Times, for example, or the Washington Post or or TechCrunch or Wired or BuzzFeed, for example, and you you say like, oh, hey, I saw this. Isn't this weird or isn't this funny or isn't this interesting? You're basically validating it for all of the people who follow you and look to you as a source of information. And it's a a pretty common pattern on the social Internet and something we've been experiencing for a long time. We're just transitioning this kind of like blog style um, influence to something more organic and social, but it's still the same dynamics.
0: And I mean, they're always searching for fresh content. So they're grabbing things and often probably not necessarily doing the research and due diligence because we used to have one newspaper a day. Now you're having newspapers every minute come out with updates. Definitely interesting. I didn't realize I was in the presence of an original influencer, though. I apologize. I I (laughs) should have posted that one a little bit more. Well. I'd love to. I mean, obviously we're going down a rabbit hole of ideas here, but there was one topic that I really wanted to get into today. We have a lot of small businesses that listen to our show. And one of the things, I mean, obviously COVID this past year, I can't even imagine what you were dealing with from a reputation management standpoint. As we're kind of at the tail end of this whole unbelievable journey that we've all gone through together, businesses are starting to open and, you know, regulations, policies are changing. And unfortunately, there's been a lot of unrest between customers, business owners, and the government. You know, what have you seen as restrictions are lifting from the businesses in regards to, you know, anything that they've been dealing with COVID, most likely around, you know, regulations and rules? How has how that affected?
1: Well, I think this is a great example because it's, Talking about you know COVID-19 policies and masks and this is a, you know, for better or for worse, this has become an issue that's very politicized. And so it's not so much about what's the best way to deal with COVID, but a little bit more about signaling like what your politics are, and so uh, people on the on the political left are—they signal that they are believers in science by um, by, by wearing masks. And then people on the political right are like, "Come on, like you're really infringing on, on on my freedoms by forcing me to wear this mask. Like, don't tell me how to run my life." And and so either way, I mean, these are these are both valid ways of moving through the world. But of course, now companies are stuck in the middle of it, and whatever policy they adopt, they are in effect making themselves part of this political conversation or they're being pulled into a political conversation whether they want to be or not and so uh, what we see with a lot of companies is they're just trying to do the right thing for their staff, for their employees, you know, for for their for their customers, and they they can't make a decision that won't be viewed as political by one side or the other, or won't be opportunistically used as political by one side or the other. And so, if you say masks will be mandated even though the CDC said it's not necessary, oh well, then you know you're just uh, you're caving to the to to the woke mob that's forcing you to da da, da 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 Or if you say, well, I don't know, like masks are optional because that's what the CDC said, then you you know you're you're not you're not protecting your vulnerable employees from this disease that we don't know and and I think that's been a really difficult thing for brands to navigate because they're 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 trying to make decisions that are apolitical they have nothing to do with politics but they're pulled into politics regardless and I think what they're finding is that of all of the agendas that are pursued online and there are many from you know from people who are obsessed with certain types of pop stars and cosplay and you know whatever all the way through to people who are talking about social justice and political agendas you know politics is huge like we there there is a huge amount of like political social media amplification both inauthentic and authentic and getting pulled into that space means that your brand is being discussed in environments that almost always are not good for your reputation and i think that's really been a challenging thing for brands to navigate as there is theres are Again, just trying to do right by their by their customers and their employees
0: for the most part. Yeah, so I know. I mean, we work a lot in the social media aspect, and you know, getting trolled was something that you and I had had talked about. How do you suggest, and again, I know it's, it's not a simple answer, but I'd love for you to kind of give us as best as you can, brands handle those situations because we're, we are, I mean, not only are people feeling more opinionated, we've also, with the shift this past year, we've shown people are turning online for everything. How do, what can you suggest for brands to do? Any advice that they can have from you?
1: Well, I would say that like at a, at a meta level, that reputation is something that is tended to like a garden. It's not something that's rescued in a moment of crisis. And that's a, that's a, a different way of thinking. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and I'm sure you know this from the clients that you work with. I think that's something that is, it's a different way of thinking for a lot of brands. And the, it's especially true in a social media environment because in a vacuum, the loudest voice wins on social media. I worked with a, a great researcher. She's now at Stanford, um, a woman called Renee DeResta, who coined this fantastic phrase when she was talking about how misinformation and disinformation works online. And she would say, like, the goal is that if you make it trend, you make it true. And that, I think, really powerfully articulates why these trolling groups are so successful because they make it trend. And they're basically what they're doing is they're filling a vacuum. They're saying, nobody's talking about this. So we're going to talk about it a bunch. And what the human brain does is when you hear something a bunch of times, you think, well, I mean, that doesn't really make sense to me, but it's probably at least a little true. I mean, otherwise so many people wouldn't be talking about it so often. And that's a normal human thing and we can't do anything about it as a species. It's just how it is. (laughs) And so given that that's the case, Online it means that it's really easy to say things a lot of times. And so I think for, for brands, they just have to think about like, people won't assume the best of you. People won't assume best intentions. Like you, you have to be thinking about how you wanna fill that space. Like what's the, what, what are your values? What is your purpose? What, what is the rationale behind the decisions that you're making? That those are things that, that you can be proactive about communicating and in a way you can fill the space, um, you can set the frame. And I think that's more important than it used to be, given how easy it is for that perception to be shaped by others in this kind of modern information environment, the social media environment. So things have changed a little bit. So I think that's a big one. And then the other thing also to remember about these dynamics um, is that even like public opinion can be shaped. At the same time, just because you get a couple hundred comments on a social media post or a couple hundred emails on the same topic, for example, which is the thing that we see a lot too, it doesn't mean that that represents a couple hundred thousand or a couple million people. And that's a, that's a big shift because if 200 people wrote your company a letter in 1950, I think you could assume like, well, man, like that... That took a lot of effort. Like 200 people went out of their way to write a letter to tell me how upset they were about something that that we must have really made a mistake because most people don't bother to go to the trouble of doing that, which is, again, a normal way for the human brain to think. And then and then your company or your organization or as an individual, you take some action to address the concerns that have been raised to you. But online, of course, it's not that difficult. It's really easy to leave a comment on a social media post or to make a, a post on Yelp or another site where you know, people are leaving reviews about reputation. That's very straightforward. And what we see a lot is that these groups coordinate that. It's called brigading or review bombing is like a, a term that people talk about where they say, hey, all 200 of us in this, this Telegram channel or this Twitter DM thread or whatever, like we're all going to go teach this company a lesson by leaving reviews or by responding to the social media post that they just made. And we're going to overwhelm their comments and we're going to show them how wrong they are. And overreacting to that basically means you take something that was a A sticking point or an agenda-driven activity from a a really small number of people and you've blown it way out of proportion. So if you're, especially for larger companies, you know, you have huge resources and such a big platform. And then if you make a change about how you operate or your products, if you sever ties with a spokesperson, anything that, you know, a policy change, whatever, anything that you might do in response to that provocation, you just need to think through, does this really represent, does this group or do these individuals really represent my stakeholders? Does this really, is this, in keeping with my values, because it's, it's very easy for very large organizations to get, um, to get fooled, basically, to get provoked um, into taking action by, by what seems like it must be a serious issue or a signal of something that's a much bigger problem. But in fact, it's a, it's a deliberate attempt to, to capture your attention, to, f- to focus your attention on something that isn't actually that important to most people.
0: Yeah, they're trying to draw you in. That's, that's absolutely fascinating. One thing that, that we've noticed a lot this year from larger businesses that we didn't typically see in the past that a lot of our smaller businesses are asking us about now. And I'd love to get your opinion on is, is actually making an opinion, taking a stand one way or the other. Previously in the past, a lot of brands kind of remained neutral or, you know, they just were very vague with how they stood, what they believed in. And this past year, that's not good enough anymore. You need to take a direct stand. But with that, you're really opening yourself up a lot. So I'd love to to hear, you know, I mean, obviously you're working with these businesses to, I'm sure, do this research, understand, you know, if you go down that route, this is what might happen. But, you know, could you just walk us through that process a little bit, as well as provide any advice on kind of how to navigate that as best as possible?
1: Yeah. And I think that's, you know, it's interesting, Edelman released a, they did that, you know, they talk about their trust index every year, and they, they were talking about brand trust this year. And they, they noted in their research that of all of the institutions in which people kind of put their faith or their trust to, and expect kind of quality information, that a lot of the places we used to put it, Aren't doing so well. Like we used to put our trust in the media, and it's not doing so well. We used to put our trust in government, and that trust has eroded. But trust in corporations, even NGOs, for crying out loud, like to, you know, organizations that used to be seen as kind of neutral and authoritative, trust has been eroded. But in businesses, that's not the case. And so there's a lot of trust in businesses right now. And I think that that's relevant to this idea of you know this expectation that businesses take a stand. And so it's something people I think have realized that that businesses are a real source of influence. They're a trusted voice in the community. When people find a trusted voice, then they say, all right, well, what we, as employees, as you know, we're, we're stakeholders in this, this this company represents part of my identity and I need my identity to be represented in this organization, or, or I'm a consumer and I've, I've decided that, you know, I, I choose my brands carefully. I'm I'm a local coffee shop person, and so I, I the local coffee shop that I go to every morning is like a little bit part of my identity, and so I, I I need them to behave in a way that's consistent with my values. You know, and and this is a this is a really new way of thinking that comes out of some of this this new places that we put our trust, and so brands do have a responsibility, but I think they have the responsibility whether they want it or not. Like you pointed out, I, I think the key is. Like think about what your stakeholders expect, and they're all of the stakeholders that companies would already think of. And it's it's your consumers, it's your employees. If you're big enough, it might be you know your board. Um, it might be your shareholders. It you know depend again depending on the size of the organization. Uh, the, the vendors, you know your your customers, whoever it is that you work with. You know this like network of stakeholders that really define. You know your your business and and i think think about what they expect and then decide based on what they expect and based on your values and at a in a smaller business that might be synonymous with the values of the founder or the you know the executive team um but think about your values think about your stakeholders, and then make a choice and live with it knowing that you're not gonna make everybody happy. Um, and, and and I think that's freeing for a lot of the companies that we work with is that there's, there's no such thing as being neutral. You definitely will be penalized if you misjudge and say, we don't need to comment on this and your stakeholders expect you to. The fact that you decided to sit out it's not permissible. It's not like, oh, well, they get a pass. They decided not to comment on this one. It's like, no, you decided not to comment, which in effect is a statement. You must be complicit with the side that I disagree with. And then you're pulled into the argument anyway. And so that freedom of knowing that like you won't make everybody happy and knowing that you're, you know, remember who your stakeholders are, remember who you're communicating to. And if you stick to your guns, if you stick to your values and if you're consistent, like that's why you have those relationships with your stakeholders in the first place. And so it's a, it's not quite as risky as it seems, but it's also, you know, it, it's not going to be perfect on the other side and, and and that's okay too. And I think it's just, it's a little bit more complicated. It's a little messier, but it is the reality. Uh, like you pointed out.
0: It is so fascinating because I can think about certain brands and moves they make Nike is one that always jumps out because it's this iconic brand that has definitely made mistakes and done interesting things, but they continue to remain relevant and people i mean die hard loyal customers um, because of what you said they you know they go through hard times, but in my opinion they've committed to this is who we are, and for better or worse we're we're going to make the decisions that align with that. I imagine though you probably have those conversations with your clients and you're letting them know if you Go down decision X, Y will happen and it's not going to be smooth or pretty. It's one thing to, to warn them about that, to talk about it. But then when they're live in the moment and it's happening, how are you, you know, continuing those conversations, keeping them calm, keeping them on the course when, when the daggers start coming, I guess?
1: That's a also, I think a really, a really great thing to point out. And every company, as we're getting to know them, every new customer, they almost always have some version of the story that it's impossible to make good decisions in a in 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 chaos everybody has really good crisis teams they're really responsive they're really smart they've got a ton of experience and and really good with media strategy but in the moment you're you're making decisions and often those decisions are there's heavy input from people whose job normally has nothing to do with it like their job is normally You know, operating a great business and returning value to shareholders like (laughs) they're an executive at a big company. And but of course, because you're making decisions that will have an impact on, in effect, the company's policy, the company's reputation, the company's relationship with the public, like senior leadership has to weigh in on those decisions.
0: Absolutely.
1: And so that creates a difficult dynamic in the moment, where the media team is more or less operating off, or the crisis or the communications team is operating off of intuition and experience, which is very well informed, but it's just intuition and experience. And so you end up in a debate with leadership who are, you know, also trying to use their own intuition and experience to evaluate the best path forward. And it, sometimes it works out, and companies navigate crises well. And then other times it doesn't. And but there's a lot of inconsistency. And so I think for us, having a data-driven framework where you can say, look, here's the information. Here are the agendas involved in this conversation. Here's the potential impact. Here's how much time we have to make a decision. Here are the key events that might happen in the next 24 to 72 hours to three or four weeks. And if any of those key events happen, we have a plan that we'll enact based on that possibility, like you can scenario plan in advance. And I think having that data driven framework. So everybody's speaking the same language from the executive team and the communications team and to anybody else who might be involved that, you know, the bigger companies the general counsel's office and the security team and getting all of these different stakeholders kind of aligned on a single framework for making decisions and then the advance warning to do scenario planning. So you're you can see the potential for a crisis, but you're making choices in a moment where you're not it, under so much pressure. And I think people make more clear-headed decisions in that in that environment. And so then you're just deploying something, deploying a plan um, that you thought of in a calmer moment rather than trying to trying to react. And I think like not only does that make for better decisions, it makes for more cohesive and aligned decisions, um, but then it also gives you an opportunity to be proactive. Um, and and of course the situation will, it's unlikely to become as severe as it might have otherwise if you act proactively. Um, and so all these things kind of play together.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, and I love the focus on, you know, trying to plan stuff out so often. And everyone says, you know, this past year, obviously you couldn't have predict, well, in theory, no one could have predicted this pandemic, but a lot of the times business owners, they talk, at least when we're talking with our clients, they feel like they're not in control. They feel as if things are happening to them. And you've spoken so much today on, you know, go and control the narrative, take control of this. You're making decisions, a lot of kind of ownership verbs and words there implying, you know, as a business, no, you do have control might not be, you know, you might not like either option, but you have control for those businesses that feel that they're in, you know, the hurricane or the eye of the storm of all of this. Do you have, you know, any kind of like quick tip advice or best practice, something that they can kind of uh, reflect back on or pull to to help guide them through anything?
1: I think as best as you can, and I, this is a this is advice that's difficult to follow, but as best as you can, whether it's the, the people you have around you or the systems that you have in place, try and make decisions based on data, try and make decisions based on facts as much as you can, and try and avoid making decisions based on the emotions that you're experiencing.
0: Absolutely.
1: We've all seen the movie where somebody just goes with their gut and they make the right call in the moment. But when people do that well in real life, it's because they have... Dozens of years of experience in similar situations, and so their instincts are informed by more data than it seems. And so, if if you are not the person who's who's constantly running from crisis to crisis to crisis, and and you don't have that intuition, and this is something that you only experience infrequently, then I, I think it's really important to to put your trust in data systems and facts, and so that you can make. Um, that's where the right intuition about how to move forward is going to come from.
0: I, I could not agree with you with you more. And a lot of, as a business owner, it's understandable. It's an emotional state. That business is your baby, but you've got to, you know, what happens online stays online for forever. So you need to be very careful with anything you say or do there. Jonathan, this was an absolutely incredible, engaging conversation. And I know a lot of questions are going to come from it. If someone wanted to reach out to you both to learn a little bit more about Yonder, hopefully, you know, reach out to you in a proactive standpoint, not due to a crisis, but if they might need your services, what's the best way for anyone to get in contact or or follow up with you for more?
1: So our our website is yonder-ai.com. There you can find more information about like what we do and and our point of view on the problem and how we've helped other customers. Um, And then contact information for how to get in touch with us and either schedule a conversation so that we can walk you through how this might work for your business yeah and then and then start the process but that's a, there's a ton of information there we're, we're trying to really help folks make sure that they understand this problem and understand these new dynamics of the internet so there's a there's a bunch of great content to kind of get a better intuition about this and then also um that's where you'll find all the information about how to get in touch with us so that we can um so that we can talk one to one
0: Awesome. And, and that website will be in the show notes. If you are interested in learning a little bit more, as Jonathan mentioned, they have some incredible case studies on there that you read almost like a novel because these stories of what the businesses have gone through is pretty wild, but you know they've got a great team behind helping them navigate through it. Jonathan, thank you so much for being on the show, for sharing us you know, your expertise and knowledge in the area. I, re- I really appreciate your time today.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. This was a fantastic conversation and really looking forward to hearing from listeners about um, how this, what this experience has been like for them and, and hopefully you know we can help.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. Make sure to tune in next week for more on Reputation Matters and hit subscribe or give us a five-star in the ratings below. Thanks again. Thank you for listening. I hope you got a ton of value out of this episode. Before we go, I want to thank the sponsor of our show, Rhino Reviews. Rhino Reviews can help your business with all your review generation and reputation management needs. If your business could stand to benefit from a strong online presence, and let's be honest, who can't? Visit us on the web rhino-reviews.com to learn more about what we can do to help. Until next time, don't forget 9 out of 10 buyers Google a business and decide to buy because their reputation matters. Thank you.